Well, good morning. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church, and we're just excited that you're joining us today by live stream. Today, we're wrapping up a series of messages we've been looking at for this uh, pretty much this summer. Uh, the messages have been on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and it's my hope that today, as we conclude the series, that I can make an exhibit, if you will, of three distinct portraits which vividly portray uh, very distinct things in this book. Three vivid portraits. And in fact, if I uh, was as talented as, say, Bob Ross, you know, that art icon that we all grew up watching on PBS, then I'd actually attempt to paint today's message if I was that talented. But I, I'm not. And, and of course, uh, Bob rarely painted people. So all he really painted were a lot of trees. So I guess I'm just going to have to use my words to paint these portraits for you. This full letter dictated by John uh, while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos is most accurately called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or uh, in Greek, it would, could be the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And of course, that word apocalypse, it, it conjures up all sorts of fear and speculation about the ending of the world. But apocalypse doesn't mean ending. It means unveiling. It means revealing. Something hidden now being revealed, like watching a photograph being developed in a dark room. It goes from invisible to visible. Jesus is writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, and while he does a lot of revealing of future events that will and must happen, mostly he reveals himself. A vivid picture begins to come into focus of Jesus, and it includes him commending the churches when they've been faithful and also rebuking them when they've missed the mark and it also includes him calling them into a zealous repentance. Of course, these letters are not just for these seven churches. They're in our Bible for a reason. They're there as a warning to every church since that time. And they certainly address today's church. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The first portrait I want to paint for us this morning is painted so vividly through this book, and it is of Jesus Christ himself. It's, as, it's the central theme of the book, of the whole Bible, of life itself. This portrait of Jesus is not just a painting of him as loving Savior, but as reigning King. The second portrait that I want to paint is of his bride, who is being sanctified without spot or wrinkle that she might be holy and without blame. And lastly, I want to paint the portrait of the incredible promises that Jesus makes to those who overcome. Three portraits, the reigning king, his sanctified bride, his glorious promises. So first, our reigning king. If you were to take all the descriptions of Jesus that he uses himself in announcing that he is writing to these churches, if you took all of those descriptions and then blended them all together, 
It makes for a magnificent portrait. To Ephesus, he describes himself as the one walking among the golden lampstands, which of course represent the churches themselves. He's active and moving among his people. He's not absent. He's involved, engaged, and among us. To Smyrna, he's described as the first and the last, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, and who conquered the grave. To Pergamum, he's the one from whose mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword, speaking grace to his people, destruction for their enemies. To Thyatira, his eyes are like blazing fire, for he sees all, and his feet are like burnished bronze, for he is stronger than all. To Sardis, he's holding the seven spirits of God in his hand and sends his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to help us, to comfort us, and to lead us into all wisdom and truth. And to Philadelphia, well, he's the holy and true one holding the key to every opportunity that is before us. And he's also the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And finally, to Laodicea, he announces himself as the faithful and true witness, the amen on everything that happens in creation. He's the final word. He's with us. He redeems us. He's the word of God that cuts both ways. He sees all, is stronger than all. Sending his spirit, he is holy and true. He opens a door that no one can shut, and he is faithful, true, and the final word on everything there is. Now that's a picture of a reigning king. It's a glorious portrait and it, it harkens back to John saying what Jesus looked like when he describes him in chapter 1. But it doesn't stop there. It's woven throughout this book, like when we read later in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, to which to strike, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What an amazing picture of Jesus. Now here's the question I have for each of you. Do you have this portrait of Jesus hanging in the gallery of your heart? I mean, a lot of people have pictures of Jesus. A lot of people have the softer, kinder versions of Jesus. You know, that portion, a portrait of the meek and gentle Jesus. The humble servant Jesus. Or some people just keep little snapshots of little baby Jesus lying in a manger. Or precocious 12-year-old Jesus who 
loses his way at the temple, or the poor carpenter Jesus who can identify with us in our lowly estate. Now, all of those images and realities of Jesus are true. Jesus is all of those things. He did humble himself. He was born as a man. And, of course, he came to us as a servant. But we need to see, especially when we read this book, we need to see him as the one who rides a white horse into the war that ends all wars. We need to see him as wearing the white royal robe dipped in his own redemptive blood for our salvation. And we need to see him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need to hang that portrait of Jesus up in our gallery. That's the Jesus that's being unveiled in this book. He's not weak. He's coming back as the reigning and ruling king. And as I maybe mentioned before, I heard descriptions of the Queen of England and the person talking said, she reigns, but it's the elected official's job to rule. In our case, Jesus not only reigns over all, but he rules over you and me. So see Jesus, the first portrait that we're painting, as the reigning and ruling king. But, like I said, there are three portraits we're going to paint. The second is his sanctified bride. Jesus, uh, he chooses these seven churches in Asia Minor, and it's significant, I believe, because the number seven is a number of fullness. And I think he's giving us a full picture of what the bride of Christ should look like as she makes herself ready for his coming. As he told the church in Ephesus, the, his bride, the church, is to love him first above all else and then let that love spill out over others. And like he told the church in Smyrna, his bride is to be willing and prepared to suffer for him. And as he told the church in Pergamum, his bride should know the truth and defend against false teaching and heresy. And as he told Thyatira, the church there, his bride is to be driven by love and growing in faith and willing to serve and enduringly patient. In Sardis, Jesus challenged them for not being this, but it's still his picture of what we should be, and that is to not be motivated by reputation, but to be alive in him and immersed in his presence. And to the church in Philadelphia, he said his bride was to follow Jesus through his open door of mission and evangelism and kingdom impact. And finally, the challenge he makes to the church in Laodicea, though they're also not living up to it, was to be undivided and wholehearted in her allegiance to King Jesus, buying from him the, the true riches of the kingdom and valuing communion with him more than the comforts of this world or anything else. That's an amazing portrait of a sanctified church. And it sort of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul described when he was giving instructions to husbands on how they should love their wives. He said it this way in Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives 
And then he gives the reference on how we should love our wives. He said, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, there's a whole message in there. I mean, right there, if husbands did a better job of loving their wives, well, I won't, I'll digress. But Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church back to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish or blame. I just think that this portrait of the church is a lot more beautiful than what much of the church looks like today. Much of what is called church is nothing more than cultural Christianity, with, with some enmeshed in political preservation, while others re-engineer orthodoxy to accommodate postmodern life. Are, are those really the portraits of the church that Jesus gave himself up for and will one day present back to himself a spotless, blameless church. My friend Terry Walling helped me see something from novelist and poet Wendell Berry, uh, who described cultural Christians as those who are practically disobedient to the words of Jesus. For sometimes it's just more practical to disobey him than to obey. Practical disobedience is when we give up on living as salt and light because the problems are just too big and the change is just too slow. So we resort to settling for political answers, thinking it more practical to vote it in or tear it down rather than pray it up and live it out. It doesn't mean that we as American Christians shouldn't vote. It just means that we can't let that be the only thing we do, not even the primary thing we do. And we can't let how we vote be the defining activity of our faith. That's just a secondary thing that we do as elect exiles here in this nation. Jesus calls us as his followers into an impractical obedience. It's impractical because it's impossible without his help. It's an impractical obedience of loving our neighbor and our enemies. It's the impractical obedience of turning the other cheek or going the second mile, helping the least of these, praying for those who persecute us. And as my friend Jay Center reminded me, that includes praying for our perceived enemies and forgiving them. It may seem impractical, but we have to remember that we are not at war with them. We are at war for them. When when I see so many in the American church fighting mostly political battles, both on the left and the right, I wonder if we remember what Jesus told Pilate when he said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Well, Jesus, a lot of your servants are fighting today. So many of us fighting. 
Why are we fighting so hard for an earthly kingdom? His kingdom is not of this world. Writer Cap Stewart writes, to engage our culture in a militant and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors. It's trading our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It's trading the armor of God for the fig leaves of human striving. It's the capitulation of earthly, to earthly wisdom attempting to fight for the kingdom of God on world's terms. Now listen, I'm not trying to make a political statement here, either left or right. We have people in our community, people I strongly love and appreciate, who have different opinions about how we should vote and why we should do it. And I don't let that become a test of fellowship in Christ. I don't tell you how to vote on either side of anything. That's between you and the Lord, and let him dictate to you how you should vote. But we need to prioritize our lives around obeying Jesus, no matter how impractical it is. Or we have resorted to the practical disobedience by hoping elected officials and political movements will do the job we've been given to do. The picture, the portrait of the sanctified church is so much more than a political party, persuasion, partisanship, or agenda. Jesus is sanctifying for himself a bride. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of his kingdom that is not of this world. I want to be a part of him making me spotless and blameless and without wrinkle. I bet you do too. This is last portrait. This, this portrait first is of the reigning and ruling king, Jesus. And the song that Josh and Heidi sang earlier, he's beautiful. And that is a beautiful portrait of this Jesus that we love and are changed by. And the second portrait is of a sanctified, glorious bride that is going to be presented back to him one day. And finally, this last portrait is of his glorious promises. The things that he promises to all who overcome and who keep his works until the end. He told the church in Ephesus that he promised that those who heard and overcame, that they would eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. It harkens back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? It's, it's come full circle. It's wrapping up. It's putting a bookend on the end of this story of creation. And it was in the garden, a tree of life. And now those who overcome will be eating from the true tree of life in the paradise of God. He told the church in Smyrna that they will not be hurt by the second death. They will live forever. He told the church in Pergamum that they will receive hidden manna. And their name would be written on a new white stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's a fascinating uh, reference because Jesus, remember in Revelation 19, he's said to have received a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's something special when God calls you a name that no one else knows. And then he said to those in Thyatira that those who overcome will be given authority over the nations to rule with him who received himself authority from the Father. 
and to the church in Sardis that they would be clothed in white garments, which means purity. Their sins blotted out, but their names would never be blotted from the book of life. And that Jesus, oh, this is beautiful, he would confess their names before the Father and before his angels. Imagine Jesus not only giving you a name that no one else knows but you, but then him confessing that name to the Father and all of his created angels. And then he said to the the church in Philadelphia that they would be made pillars in the temple of God to always remain, to never leave, with God's name and his city, the new Jerusalem, being written upon them. And finally, to the church in Laodicea, he said, and they will sit with Jesus on his throne, just as he also conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. These are such great glorious promises. For a a church being sanctified as the bride of a reigning king. So those are my three portraits for us. Didn't need Bob Ross to do it. I hope that you see the broad strokes of the beautiful portrait of Jesus as not only our savior, but as, as the reigning king. I think our portrait of Jesus has to be enlarged. The way we see him has to be expanded. He's not just Mary's baby. He's not even just the suffering servant, though he is both of those things. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I believe the portrait of the church, his bride, I believe it needs to be restored. I believe he is judging his people and pruning us, and he is making us a more pure representation of his glorious bride. We are are more than what is being displayed in the world today. There is so much greater things that he wants to do in and through us, for we are his workmanship, his people, the bride of Jesus who loves him and, and he loves us and he gave himself up for us that we might be cleansed and sanctified and, and presented to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blame. And lastly, we need to have an expanded, more full portrait of his promises to those who overcome and keep his works until the end. For it's in these promises that we will be able to see him as he really is and become his spotless and blameless bride. May it be so. Amen. I'm going to ask my wife to come. I think she's here. She's been upstairs watching some of our grandkids, which has been a delight. And so we've done this a little bit in separate rooms, but I'm glad you made your appearance. I was nervous about it. <laughs> you were too. Right so, at the last moment, somebody needs to go to the bathroom. Oh, that's what happens. So this is real world. So share with us anything that the Lord may have put on your heart, and then we'll pray for everyone watching. I really appreciated the the comparison of what 
what we've been called to be, what God has provided for us versus what we sometimes choose to live in. Hmm. Um, And so it made me think of um, the section of scripture in Ephesians 2, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I think it's it's sort of where my heart is in terms of praying for us that we can lay hold of this vision, not just of the king, but of the kingdom that he is calling us to participate in. Hmm. It says, all of us were spiritually dead, drifting along with the world's ideas, responding to that unseen ruler that works in those that are disobedient. That was really sobering, um, concerning. But I think that this is the world that we live in, drifting along on the world's ideas. In the past, we have followed impulses and evil desires from our sinful nature. And while we were dead in that sinful life, God, who was rich in mercy, gave his life for us. And he lifted us, the message says, right out of the old life to take our place with him in the heavens, showing for all time the tremendous generosity of his grace and kindness expressed to us in Christ Jesus. It was nothing we could do or achieve, but utterly a gift. I think that's really important when we're trying to tell other people about the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. These passages say, we will not forget that without Christ, we were nothing. We won't forget that we were strangers and had no knowledge of him or the right to his promises that Chris just read to us. All those promises in Revelation, Mm -hmm. apart from what Christ did, those promises would be nothing for us. But we won't forget that we didn't have access to those promises before Christ died for us. But now, through the blood of Christ, he reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation to invite others into this glorious picture of the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. So now we are no longer outsiders or aliens. We are fellow citizens with all other Christians, and we belong to the household of God. He is our foundation, building us up into a temple where his spirit lives. I love one uh, translation says that uh, that we have been invited inside the circle of his grace and his purpose. Mm And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would learn what that means to live there and that we would learn how to sacrifice whatever it takes to bring others to be a part of that inside of his grace and his purpose. That's good. Father, thank you for being so clear with us because in your word is the power to obey. Even if we don't understand intellectually everything that you're revealing, you are revealing it to us by the Spirit. And because your Spirit resides in us, we can say yes to these things, not even knowing how it's all going to unfold 
what you're going to require for us to let go of or lay hold of. But we can say yes, yes. because you're a good father, you're a just king, and you are speaking to us from eternity, mm. compelling us into your purposes, translating us again and again into the kingdom of light, yes. and empowering our witness so that we can point others to you on the throne mm. because it's your kingship that makes the difference. Yes. It's when you are Lord of our lives that we love better, that we care better, that we lay down our lives for others at, out of your example. Yes. So Father, make this word alive in us. Give us an untarnished vision of you on the throne and us as your bride, yes. so that we would be compelled into obedience and nothing would distract us from living up to our purpose and our calling because you are worthy, King Jesus. Father, we thank you for the revelation unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's because you unveiled yourself, revealed yourself, that we have the opportunity for newness of life, mm -hmm. faith in the first place, hope, peace, righteousness. There is nothing that we have that is good that didn't come from your revealing, your unveiling. So I pray that you would cause our vision to increase. Yes. Enlarge our vision, Lord, of you, seeing a better portrait of who you are, the fullness of the Godhead, I pray that you will expand the way we see you, not only in, on the throne and in heaven above, but as walking among us and changing, disciplining, reproving, correcting, building, reforming us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see a restoration of your church, your people, not the institutional organizations, but the organic people of God those that are your own, those that are your people, that are being formed and fashioned into your bride, mm -hmm. that one day you will present to yourself, for you have made us spotless and without wrinkle, and you have sanctified us to be blameless mm -hmm. without blemish. Lord, I pray that we would not be reduced into little games and squirmishes for things that we think are important, but they're just temporal. May we have our vision raised to see the eternity of your yes. will yes, and the expansion of your kingdom and the glory of you being lifted up and drawing men to yourself. And lastly, Lord, I pray that we would stand on the promises of God, yes. that we would fully be changed by all that you have promised, and these things would be what we keep our eyes on. And so doing, we would see your word come to pass in our midst. I pray for everyone who's listening here today in this season, may they have increased vision, and may they be responsive, zealously repentant towards coming back to you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.
Amen. We love you. Hopefully we'll see you tonight at the communion time and then next Sunday as we gather back in person. The Lord bless you.